the physical confrontation. Exploring the culture, the adventure, and the impact of martial arts. That's what Kung Fu Podcast is all about. And I'm your host, T.W. Smith. Thank you for joining me today in episode number 158. It really means a lot to me that you would include me as part of your martial arts journey. Well, we're going to be looking at an article that was written by Peter Constradine from the World Combat Association as it is associated with the physical confrontation. Peter Constradine is one of Kung Fu Podcast's agents of action. Someone who is consistently supporting and contributing to the type of material that you're going to really want to have interwoven into your martial arts curriculum. Some of the episodes that he has contributed to here was the powering up of your martial arts through imagery training, achieving your objective, the 12 factors that affect your ability to make a swift decision, and then we use those materials where I designed the decision calisthenics for martial artists. If you want to find out more, go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash Peter. In today's episode, we're going to have defining a physical confrontation, approaches to the physical encounter, five fundamentals of engaging a physical encounter. I'm going ahead and added in some more research under the heading, 10 aggression signals of body language training, nine principles to remember when in a confrontation, your internal narrative, situational management, the big picture, and then lastly, professional and personal considerations. While I was drafting it, this was going to be a two-part series, and it still might end up being a two-part series, but right now I'm going to shoot for just making it one. You may want to take notes, but I did create you a downloadable summarization sheet that you can get when you log in over at Kung Fu Podcast. Let's define what we mean by physical encounter. Most of us, and I mean by most of us, if you have children over the age of 12, more than likely they've been in this situation at least once where you're looking around just intuitively or maybe you're talking to someone and you glance around and you see that all of a sudden someone is really focusing on you. You may have your own words for it, the glare, the stare. I usually refer to it as the stink eye you can tell that they've got something to say to you and they're saying it through their gaze. You are now the focus of someone else's unwelcome attention. It doesn't matter how far they are away from you. It could be 50 feet or 100 feet. I was recently talking with four men and they each had a story that was an example of that definition. We had a 14-year-old young man who had the experience at a middle school function a 19-year-old man who had the experience at a prom, a 27-year-old man who was at a military function and at the officer's ball realized that he was uh, getting the glare from his date's former boyfriend, and a vice president of sales who found himself at the receiving end of the glare while he was attending a sales conference. If we wanted to follow this through an algorithm, once we realize that the physical engagement, the physical encounter has began, you're generally going to take one of two options, acknowledgement or ignore them. Acknowledgement is the stepping up to the line process, as Peter describes it, and can often be a confidence-confirming action. Acknowledgement tells our inner overactive anxiety-generating system that things are under control 
and that we will stay in charge of the unfolding events. That's the subjective advantage. The objective side of the equation being that it also tells the other person that we won't avoid them, either verbally or physically. At this stage, it is all about body language, particularly posture, facial expression, and portraying that appearance of being confidence. That would be the defense of using acknowledgement as a tactic. The prosecution of using acknowledgement as a tactic is, is that acknowledgement somewhat flies in the face of avoiding a confrontation. One of the things that you're going to find in this episode is that I really want you to have the ingredients so you can begin to make a formula, put together the ingredients that you're going to need to have a personal response during a physical encounter, during a physical confrontation. The other approach that you can take is to ignore the eye contact, and it has its advantages. First of all, by ignoring it, you may give them the impression that you really haven't noticed their interest in you yet. Therefore, any potential confrontation isn't aggravated and could possibly be avoided. The other rationale behind taking the ignoring approach is that it gives you a tactical advantage in the sense that you can lead the other party into a false sense of security, enhancing their view that they may actually have their victim. Peter also writes that the ignoring approach allows you to get better positioning if needed without conveying this element of planning on your part. By ignoring, you can reposition yourself to include the variables such as the environmental issues, such as the flooring. Are you on one of those slick dance floors or out by some tile? The building structures or vehicles, which could be barriers. Are there other people? Do you have witnesses or not? Being able to move into a better tactical position needs to go unnoticed if you're not going to escalate things. So once you've decided whether you're going to take the ignoring or the acknowledgement approach, then you're going to want to consider are you going to take the assertive or aggressive stance. Peter recommends that you avoid the aggressive stance unless you are very good at what he calls theater, which is the whole concept of the aggression dialogue and posturing. Hey, what are you looking at me? You got something to say to me? Now, if you've never used theater and made it work in the past or never played it in a role to where you are absolutely convincing that it's going to work and you believe that it's going to work, then taking the aggressive role is not an option for you. You most likely want to put that on your need-to-practice list. You're going to want to consider, if possible, that only reasonable people are open to taking reasonable requests. So if you're not sure, but it looks like that your aggressor's judgment is impaired, for example, been drinking or on drugs, then a reasoned approach is going to have very little or no effect on that other person. So if that being said, if aggression isn't your style and reasoning may or may not be an option, you're really going to want to consider taking an assertive approach or otherwise you're going to find that it's really hard to stay in control of your own negative emotions. To begin putting all that into action, let's consider five fundamentals. The first one is, is that you must be prepared for a physical response at a fraction of a second's notice. Peter reemphasizes that these types of engagements do not always progress in some sort of linear fashion. In fact, that's one of the ways that is typically 
practice, right, where there's a series of escalator steps that are taken by both parties, and this dialogue happens that you can kind of just follow through. The problem is, is that in many instances, it doesn't go that way. You could actually have someone walk right up to you, not even stop to say a word to you in any shape, form, or fashion without any warning. You cannot automatically expect dialogue from someone, and you have to be ready for one thing and one thing only, and particularly if you're in your yellow zone of awareness. Protect your space at all costs. The second fundamental principle is that no one is allowed inside the reach of your fingertips. That applies to anyone in their practice, whether you're a police officer, security officer, or a civilian. Wherever you are, you have to be used to putting up this invisible protective bubble around you. Peter refers to this as the fence concept. In a busy street, for example, you may expand and shrink this bubble as people walk by and who may even bump into you. But during those types of assessments and evaluations, nothing's indicated to you that they are an obvious threat. However, when you perceive a direct interest in you that is unwanted, then it shields up and no one is supposed to get through your fence. The fence concept is predominant in this situation and it's a good idea to practice it regularly. You're going to want to create a script and gesturing that makes your fence work. Don't just adopt someone else's. Create your own. You might use examples, but you have to learn to be you and your script when you're trying to execute the fence technique. Because as Peter writes, it's very possible that you're just going to tip the other person over the edge, particularly if you bring your hands up in a provocative move where the palms are forward that simply says, I've got a problem with you and I'm going to keep you at bay, which can be easily interpreted as a challenge to the aggressor. You want to learn to coordinate your hands with your speech, emphasizing what you say in a manner that goes unnoticed, but keeps your arms out long and making the fence available, which helps you define your bubble and puts up a visual limit of your personal space. Basically, learn to talk with your hands. The third fundamental is that you have to get in the moment, which means avoid analyzing why you are here, what got you here, why is this happening to you, and all that kind of stuff. Because this is the first paragraph of the chapter called Denial. And as Peter writes, Denial is your subconscious telling you that you shouldn't be here, that it's not fair, and that you really are not part of what's taking place anyway. It's not your fault. This denial condition can actually be made worse if the events have unfolded quickly and you've been shocked. All of a sudden you just become aware of all this that's happened. And shock is the first route to fear. And part of the chapter titled, I've Lost the Fight Before It's Began. Fundamental 3 wants you to remember to stay here. You're in it. Accept it and get on with it. Peter quotes an American service agent who says, If you don't think it can happen to you, it will happen twice as fast. The fourth fundamental is that you have to have the confidence to act swiftly. If you've been practicing martial arts for a while, your subconscious may flash up in front of you one word, consequences. And under that sign, under that word, are jumbled all these issues, such as law, 
potential injuries. You may not have confidence in your techniques. You may not quite be sure what's reasonable, how much impact, etc. and so on. All this mental jargon and negative thoughts are going to steal your confidence and slow you down. This is where the defensive tactics and martial arts diverge. They diverge primarily in the arena of stances, martial arts versus western violence, and techniques versus application. These things will be considered in more detail in a future episode. The fifth fundamental, the ability to improvise striking ranges. You will hear and see a lot of times in examples that people talk about the so-called correct range for striking, but often and most likely this isn't going to be in your control because if you're at this phase most of that control has already disintegrated when you were trying to keep them outside of your fence if they continue to move in and a preemptive strike is necessary things are no longer perfectly placed therefore impact from strike must work from a few inches to a foot or even if you have to reach out further than you like to, what we call getting over your skis. And if you get over your skis, you could be at risk, but it is sometimes necessary in order to, to get ahead of the situation. So those are your five fundamentals of this situational management of a physical confrontation. Be physically prepared. No casual postures. Put up the fence. Get in the moment. Have the confidence to act swiftly. And then have the ability to improvise your striking ranges. That's the one usually in the workshops I title every hand has a distance and you want to practice folding and unfolding these techniques that meet the range that you're in and it must happen seamlessly. As we have become aware of someone's unwanted attention upon us we've also just discussed the five fundamentals of situational management. Let's take a look into body language or body language training. What can you do to give yourself more information about how this is going or where it can go and do so quickly? Tracy Brown wrote an article at thebodylanguagetrainer.com. In that article, Tracy shares some wonderful information and I've kind of separated in my mind because that's just kind of how I work. But the gist of it is, is you want to get very attuned to the gestures and threats that are telling you things are getting hot and the smackdown is getting closer. Recognize them in yourself first. Then recognizing them in others is going to just be a natural extension of yourself. And that's a, actually a very Buddhist tradition as well. Anything that you're trying to learn about, start with you. If it's compassion, learn to be compassionate or patient with yourself and then becoming patient with others is a natural extension of that. As compared to the flip side, if you try to recognize these qualities in others first, then you will often fail in recognizing your contribution to the situation, which leads to this Kung Fu Podcast pop quiz question. How can you de-escalate or avoid anything when you don't recognize your own aggression signals? You've got to be able to start with yourself first. I separated Tracy's list into two categories, gestures and threats. Let's start with the gestures first. Pursed lips is a gesture. It's a signal that you're holding back what you're saying, you know, like, mm, 
and you're not saying what you really want to say. Thoughts and feelings behind pursed lips are very seldom ever positive. Then you have the squint, or what I call the stink eye, where you drop those eyebrows, letting them know that you're angry. In fact, all you got to do is look at the emoticon for angry, and it shows you exactly what the stink eye looks like. So we have the pursed lips, the squint. Another gesture is the reddening or flushing of the face. Another gesture is the clenched jaw, where it's tensing up as if it's prepping for a fight. Finger pointing. Whenever someone points their fingers at you directly or even straight up in the air, they want you to get what they're saying and the energy behind it. Then the last one on the gestures list is throwing things around. I put on gestures because they are pretty angry. They start to you know slam their fist on the table or maybe even punch a hole in a wall. Now that is aggression, but it's not really directed at you. So it's hard to say, well, I defended myself because they punched a wall. That's why I put it in the gestures category. As compared to threats, the first one is the threatening posture, where they pretty much kind of ease themselves into your space to a degree. They try to make themselves look bigger, dominant, and intimidating. In itself, it could still be listed as a gesture, but if they are real threats verbally issued and a posture taken, for example, in North Carolina, you could easily perceive this as the start of assault because if you're not ready to go preemptively at this point where the verbal threats the postures are being taken things are coming to a head real fast you're in real danger of getting the smackdown laid on you besides the threatening posture you have the space invasion and the number one thing is peter stated that you have got to respect and protect is your space invading someone else's space could make you be perceived as hostile or of course if they do it to you then you're going to perceive it as being hostile and if they have aggressive tone with it of course now we're in a threatening situation if you already have put up the fence created a cushion and used verbal de-escalation and they still press into your space this is an action trigger and you're going to have to take it the third threat is touching without permission Tracy writes quote Touching someone without permission is a classic sign of aggression. Not only does it invade personal space, but it sends a message that the aggressor is not afraid. Motions can include anything from grabbing someone's arm to pointing your finger into their chest. End quote. As we have already discussed, if this is happening and you're being touched without permission, you are already way behind in the safety zone, spacing, posturing, gesturing, and now we have allowed someone to get so close in that they start the hostile finger poking in the chest. The last item on the body language trainer list is the sudden movement. You know, it's one of those sudden jerks like a man, a, a fake, as if they're going to kind of take you out to intimidate you. Tracy writes that they would actually like to complete it and beat you up if possible but right now they're really not sure if they got the guts to do it. Which brings us to a close of the highlights of the aggressive body language training. So let's review where we are now at the end of part one of this. First, we define the physical confrontation as where you have identified someone's unwanted attention upon you. You could take two approaches right off the bat. You can acknowledge it or ignore it. Then you're going to have two pathways that you're going to generally want to practice, being assertive or aggressive. 
We've gone through the five fundamentals of situational management of the physical confrontation. Be physically prepared. Put up the fence. Get in the moment. Confidence to act swiftly. And the ability to improvise in striking ranges. And then lastly, the body language trainer. You got gestures, pursed lips, squinting, red or flushed face, clenched jaw, finger pointing, and they start to throw things around. Then I listed threats out of Tracy's article as threatening postures, invading space, unwanted touching, sudden movements. And if you sense that the threats are starting to come down, we're going to go back to Peter's article because this is where he begins to discuss the third eye or what I call the inner narrative. He writes, one other skill that we need to muster is the attack defense brain switch. When someone is in our face and getting more aggressive, we can face an overload while we're trying to keep pace with all the verbal dialogue and our responses, as well as looking for the nonverbal clues, for example, the body language stuff that we just went through, and the other cues about that person's level of arousal. We therefore need to pay attention to what's being said, demanded or stated, so that we can divert the attack at the verbal level. Unfortunately, this naturally occupies our brain in a cognitive way, and when the brain is engaged cognitively, we can often and dangerously, without realizing it, detach from the task of recognizing a tipping point where an attack is about to be launched. So basically, we're distracted with ourselves. And we can miss the action trigger where we need to preemptively strike. When you ally this with all the other issues going through our subconscious, such as consequences and decision-making, fear control, and the whole fighter's chemical cocktail sensations that we develop, you can see with all that going on how you might miss the decisive moment. Our subconscious is constantly monitoring and switching between the attack defense options while at the same time trying to organize verbal responses. Visualize the problem and try to role play a scenario where you engage in dialogue. This is where imagery training can assist. Visualize the problem and try to role play a scenario where you engage in dialogue but have this autopilot third eye that is constantly monitoring the nonverbal signals, the warning signs, and the danger signs. We must find a way to develop that third eye, that inner voice that lets us know exactly what needs to happen at the moment it needs to happen. But that development doesn't happen by chance. You've got to work on it. Peter also provides a few principles that you're going to want to remember. These are kind of like the global overarching, I call it the gravity works kind of thing, you know, no matter what happens, gravity works. Well, these are some of the things that you're going to want to remember during the personal confrontation. Number one, action beats reaction. The person who starts it comes out ahead if the two people are within touching distance. You cannot afford to be second. As one combat pistol expert summed it up, there is no second place winner. The second principle is decision making is flawed. Cognitive powers deteriorate in direct relationship to increasing stress and getting frozen in the moment as you try to psych yourself up into action. 
that may not even change until the moment that you are physically assaulted. I'd encourage you to go back to listen to the 12 factors that affect swift decision-making. That podcast is loaded with a lot of information that would speak to decision-making. The third principle is paralysis by analysis. you got too many options. This is where all the years of martial arts training becomes a hindrance, not a help. We have given ourselves too many choices, and in the process of going through that analysis, we fall behind and end up in trouble. The fourth principle is that we have to to develop action triggers. If we refer to number three, where we were talking about flawed decision-making, it becomes apparent that you need to substitute for trying to decide when to act and develop an action trigger. This concept is to associate a physical action, for example a strike, with a word or a gesture, so that we develop what psychologists call a primary or pavilion response. In other words, we condition ourselves to almost automatically act physically when we say a chosen word that we bring into conversation with an assailant. The fifth principle is that the action trigger links with having already predetermined our force options. Peter uses the term a 4D assessment that we'll be covering in another episode with the action triggers. The sixth principle is fear and emotional control. Whether we fight one person or many, we overcome not because we dominate the person, but because we dominate the situation. In other words, we don't let the circumstances overcome us. As they say in sports when it's a big tournament, play the game, not the association. One of my favorite actors is Clint Eastwood. And when he portrayed the outlaw Josie Wells, he says, quote, When things get bad, really bad, and it looks like you're not going to make it, you got to get mean, mad dog mean. Because if you lose your head and you give up, then you neither live nor win. And that's just the way it is. The seventh principle is you've got to be committed. A lack of commitment is the final piece of the jigsaw. After the effects of shock and surprise, you've gone through the anxiety cycle, the chemical responses, the consequences, fear, and denial stages. In most cases, a person is still going through the gamut of all these issues and trying to come to terms with them when they are actually getting physically assaulted. You've got to find a way to get through all that, have an action trigger that when you go, you go. The eighth principle that Peter lists is execute and improvise, particularly after being hit. At some point, every one of us has to come to terms with the fact that we might get struck or possibly injured, and that is an option. And also that for most people, training to be hit and becoming hardened to it is not an option. Plus, the real truth to it is, is that no one knows how they're going to respond when they are hit. But if you practice properly, you can use personal aggression to drive you past it to overcome the moment. If you can function, you can fight. We come to terms and accept the fact that there is no perfect scenario and we continue to execute our plan. It is also very true that when the adrenaline is flowing, we often don't even know we've been hit until it's all over. 
The ninth and last principle that Peter has listed is aggression. You must be capable of turning aggression on like a light bulb. It must be instantaneous and it must drive you while not being directed to the person. You've got to be able to have that sense of being aggression. I like to do that through acting, for example. But you cannot give up once it starts and all your heavy anaerobic training now comes to the forefront of all you've been doing. And it's going to be that aggression that is going to push you through all the other issues and in the end you're going to feel like you've just ran a 400 meter race. So let's take a review of the nine principles to remember. Action beats reaction. Flawed decision making. Paralysis by analysis. Number four, develop action triggers. Number five, force options. Six, manage fear and emotional control. Seven, commitment. Eight, execute and improvise. And the number nine I call flame on. You gotta go aggressive. We need to take a moment here and highlight a couple other things in situational management. We want to expand on the issue of our initial appearance to the opponent. Peter describes a useful concept to consider. He calls it either psyching out or sucking in. We've already touched on the psyching out part. That's the part where we were getting the better of your opponent by the theater. It can be a dangerous ploy because it can be seen as a challenge. And then that leaves the other person no escape route. Effectively, you've painted them into a corner with their back against the wall with no doorway and the only way to escape and not lose face is to go through you. An alternative to psyching out, if your acting skills are up to it, is to suck them in, mostly by feigning fear. And there's a chance there that there's no acting required to do that if the situation's bad enough. Talking quietly and gulping, which are things that actually happen when you are stressed, so that you convey a more fearful state than you're actually in. This tactic can be very useful when you have an aggressor who will neither leave you alone or they won't get close enough to you where you can actually physically take control. There will be situations that you can neither walk away or turn your back as you know that they're just simply going to follow you. But they're not close enough to you to make the concept of action beating reaction work in your favor. You've got to suck them in a little closer into what Peter describes as operational range. So that way your opponent gets into range but gets no warning of what's coming. Peter also writes that besides sucking in or psyching out, there is no advice or concept about the physical encounter that can stand apart from the very wide issue of the environmental context. In other words, there are few things more important than where the encounter takes place. If it's a dark underpass with only one assailant and no other people present to witness what was happening and there's no cameras to record the usual inaccurate and partial elements of the encounter, then one of your consequences, for example, such as the aftermath, is now removed, which leaves you in a position to move into action far sooner and safer than you might usually be inclined to in the middle of, say, a busy shopping street. Peter emphasizes again, you have got to play the game that you're in at the moment. 
We don't want to take words, threats, and actions as a challenge. If the threats give you a way out, then take it. And if you have to back down, then do it. If you are threatened with a weapon, listen and don't rise to the challenge. This isn't some part of a grading syllabus. Unless you have disarmed someone with a knife every day for the past five years successfully, the chances are you're going to end up dead. A threat can provide an option for you to say, hey man, I'm sorry, or pass over the money, whatever it might be, and you obey up to the point that you believe either you have no way out or that even by obeying, you're still going to be assaulted. Remind ourselves that we don't want to turn a mugging into an assault, but there are numbers and numbers of cases where compliance with the demands of the aggressive enemy didn't end the violence. Even after handing over the cash or the wallet or saying you're sorry, people have still been stabbed and shot. So you're really going to have to execute what you believe is your best call and do so with commitment. Peter brings his article to a close with a summation of reminding you what to do with practice. Make sure that when you go through your work, it's all about being prepared and that there are no surprises. In my closing of this, I added a couple things here. A little extra professional and personal considerations when dealing with the physical confrontation. Professional considerations as you're kind of laying out a framework for yourself about how you want to conduct your practice. You want to check the laws of your community and the rules of your environment. So for example, let's say you're a doctor or a student or teacher at the public schools. Your professional role and environment can dictate how effectively you're going to be able to execute certain self-protection strategies. Which brings me to a true story of being considerate of your professional role is an off-duty police officer. And I mean off-duty like on vacation, lives in Arizona and he's in Florida at Disney World. And he stops this guy who is standing there kind of on the walkway and intoxicated urinating pretty much through the fence and on the sidewalk. Things get mouthy, they escalate a little pushy. The off-duty officer puts the guy in a rear naked choke and it kills him. What if you're a school teacher confronted by an adolescent student? Your environment will dictate a lot about what you're going to be able to do on the spot or what they perceive you should be able to do on the spot. It's something that you have to practice. Besides the professional considerations, I also wanted to remind you that as you're making your formula for your self-defense programming, you have to consider your personal considerations. As we've stated in an earlier podcast, if you have a specific faith, whether that's Judaism, Christianity, Buddhism, have you reconciled the differences between your environmental roles, your professional roles, the state laws, for example, and what are going to be your protocols? In North Carolina, you can stand your ground and take on anything that you want to in regards to that you don't have to leave the site of aggression. However, that may not necessarily reconcile well with your personal beliefs, that you could have avoided this if you just stepped back. The point is, is that you can easily end up in a personal soul conflict between the law and, for example, a Christian or a Buddhist approach to avoiding a physical confrontation. As a reminder of that, 
avoiding a physical confrontation, if at all possible, that does not put you or someone else in harm's way. I would encourage you to talk with your sensei, your sifu, your teacher, and hopefully they can flex with you. So for example, in my objective-oriented martial arts class, we have what we call situational objectives. It is not a style-oriented class. I'm not teaching Lama Pai or Bakwa or Xingyi. I'm teaching that this is our situation and these are our objectives. You as the student are responsible for creating a formula that helps you reconcile this situation to meet your objectives and be responsible for doing things in a way that fits your script, your life, keeps you safe and anyone else that you love safe. I am constantly reminding the students of what I must say thank you again to Mr. Lee Sims where I read his article over there at Ian Abernathy's forum is that if you're having effective self-protection training it must be practical first. Does it work? Second, is it legal? And then third, is it ethical? Practicing the eye gouge, the groin kick, and the throat punch cannot be the answer to every situation that you walk into. You've got to practice by establishing some priorities, recognizing the situation, have an objective. Maybe you go through the force continuums in your mind and practicing it. What tools are on your martial arts utility belt? And you practice to having successful applications and outcomes. If you're one of my classes and I see that you've got a formula, you have some ideas of what you want to do, you have a good objective based on the situation, but you don't have the tool, then I'll add the tool for you. I might plug something out of one of the other systems and say, here, let's work on this so that you can apply it to meet that objective. Then everybody's happy except for the bad guy. Before we go through the quick summary of the physical confrontation, if you'd like to support this program, you can go to KungFuPodcast.com forward slash support, and there are a number of things that I can use in order to keep this program going and moving in a steady fashion as we move forward. I've got a lot of information that people have sent, books, articles, interviews that I'd love to get to, but I have to have some of your help to do it. You do not need to write this summary down. The highlights and the details are going to be on the website for you to get when you log in. Define your physical confrontation and practice the approaches in order to address it. The five fundamentals of situational management, the ten aggression signals, nine principles to remember, which included flame on, go aggressive, another look into situational management, which were the two paths of appearance where we talked about psyching out or sucking in, then also the critical place, the environment that this altercation may take place in. Remember that if you have a window to escape, it is a smart idea to use it. However, if you are following this criminal's commands and you're still not sure that the assault is going to go away and the threat may not be over, you're going to need to exercise everything that we just discussed swiftly. As Marine Gunnery Sergeant Highway says in the 1986 movie Heartbreak Ridge, you're going to have to improvise, adapt, and overcome. Perhaps one of the best examples of doing what you need to do when it's time to do it is during that movie, the two platoons had to get to the pit first. 
then that seemed to be a tie. So he ended up playing king of the pit where the two platoons get into the pit of water and they have to drag each other out and the last one standing will be the victor. Well, it comes down to where two Marines in the first platoon is dragging out Stitch Jones of the recon platoon by his arms. And he drops down and gives them groin shots to remain king of the pit. But here's what the Major had to say about it. See it that way, Major. You got order, Gunny. First platoon is king of the pit. How do you figure? Your man cheated. I say he improvised. He cheated! He adapted, he overcame. To transcend obstacles, or when we're faced with challenging circumstances, we must resist discouragement and maintain our determination. And that is where your sense of purpose will become more powerful than the problem you're experiencing. Remember to train and listen to your inner voice, your professional and personal considerations when you're dealing with a physical confrontation. Most importantly, always maintain a level of your practice that reminds you, take care of you. Having the forms is great, practicing for your health is fantastic, but if there are circumstances that you need to step up, make sure that you practice in a way that you can do it. Have a fantastic day. I look forward to hearing from you. Please, you can contact me at KungFuPodcast.com, our Twitter page, or our Facebook page. Your responses are important to me. I'll be talking with you real soon.